Welcome to Insightful Leaders. I'm your host, Ryan Stewart, and this is the show where I interview proven leaders in customer insights and CX who share their stories, strategies, and insights to drive meaningful change at your organization. Our guest for today's episode is Rod Netterfield. For the past 10 years, Rod has embedded in a variety of mid-tier and large global organizations leading customer experience strategies and functions to uplift capability and improve delivery across brands, products, and services. He believes design thinking is the secret source for transforming your customer insights into innovative CX initiatives. We're excited to have Rod on the show to do a deep dive into design thinking as it relates to customer insights and CX. Rob, welcome to Insightful Leaders. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Um, let's kick things off with design thinking, obviously an area that you have quite a, a deal of expertise in. Can you explain the process of design thinking and how organizations can benefit from it, please? Yeah, definitely. So look, design thinking, I guess, is a set of practical mindsets and methods. And so what it does is it allows you to take customer insight and actually turn it into really innovative, sustainable solutions. Um, and so what I think great design and great design thinking projects look like is that they start from that human-centered core. But I think importantly, the and, and I guess what I'm really passionate about is in your design thinking projects, you bring together this diverse group of people, both inside and outside your organization, to actually build a balanced solution so that everything that you build is actually going to stack up and actually deliver a meaningful benefit to all concerned. Got it. Okay. So, yeah, all good. So, sorry. Yeah. So, I think to the second part of your question, um, you know, I guess the importance for this, and I think why it works so well within customer experience function and team, is that it allows you to make sure you're focusing on the right problems from, you know, your customer's perspective. But I think also it means that using frameworks like, you know, a, du a double diamond, for example, that you can have that balanced conversation. So you're bringing in stakeholders and diverse groups of people so that you've got desirable, feasible and viable solutions coming out. And, and double diamond, that's something that I have heard in passing, but don't have a lot of experience in myself. Do you mind going a bit deeper on, on what double diamond is? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, look, I think, yeah, mo most people, when they think about design thinking, somewhere along the way, people say to me, oh, that's that diamond, isn't it? And so I hear that a lot. Um, and, and so, look, the, the double diamond is probably most popularised by the UK Design Council, and I think that's where most people probably have seen it come from. But fundamentally, you, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. You've got the two diamonds there. Um, and, and the first diamond is really about understanding the problem space. And then the second diamond is really about understanding the solution space. And so if you think about sort of the, the nature of a diamond, there's, there's periods here where you've got in your, your problem space where you're trying to diverge your mindsets and go out there and get all of this information before I sort of say that then you're making sense of the mess. And the beauty there is that you've gone from a general understanding of the problem to the specific problem or opportunities you're trying to explore. And then you go into your solution space. And so you go out with, uh, you know, divergent um, sort of methods and, and mindsets where most people would know sort of brainstorming or ideation sessions before you then zero in on what actually is the solution or solutions that you're coming out with at the other end of your project. Got it. And how does this translate into, or how have you seen it translate into organisational design? Is this something that you've seen influence organisational design at all? The reason why I ask is I, I kind of it feels like the people doing the first diamond, you know, getting the insights, going wide on the insights, really distilling down the understanding. There mm. needs to be some sort of transfer of that understanding and, and buy-in internally of the organisation to then move to the solution phase. And is that solution phase often done by different people? Yeah, it's a good question. And 
there's probably not a consistent answer I can give you in, in terms of if, if I think about every organization I've worked in or supported, um, you know, it's slightly different in every single organization and that's okay. And it needs to make sense in the context of your organization. Um, but fundamentally, I think it sits well in the, at least the first diamond, it sits well and typically within a CX type function, particularly an insights function. Um, I think I often believe that it needs to then have at least those people continuing into the solutioning phase because otherwise mm. you can lose sense or lose sight of what it is that you're trying to deliver. Um, but, but in essence, yes, it must have a broader application than just your CX or your insights function for this to actually have a sort of, you know, a, a solution to see the light of day, but actually to then be sustainable. So, um, you know, the, the way I sort of think about it is that the more people you can bring into these design thinking projects along the way, they have an opportunity to contribute into it. And therefore they have a little part of ownership of the outcome at the other end. And so actually it'll be, again, more likely to be successful down the track. Yeah, so I imagine for those, particularly in the solution phase, and, and I guess also in the problem phase, success here is probably at least somewhat determined by your ability to engage the area of the business that the particular problem pertains to and get them to participate in the solution. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, and it's not just design thinking projects, projects in general, but, you know, clearly we've got to talk about sponsorship. And so it's about getting the right sponsor sponsor or sponsors for your design thinking engagement. So when I think about, you know, at the, at the very, very onset of a project that you're starting with design thinking, you'll typically get at least one, two or three sponsors. And, and those are the people that, you know, we expect at the other end may have an action and outcome or an ownership of what might come out of the, of, of the actual design thinking projects, because ultimately they're the ones that have to, you know, I guess, take it forward when you, when the, when the actual specific engagement finishes. Um, but somewhere along, along the way, you know, sometimes that does change because what you think is the problem that you're exploring at the very, very start, once you've actually gone wide and then synthesized your findings, you'll actually understand there's a different root cause driver, mm. or it's actually a different problem from the customer's perspective or, or, or all of the above. Yeah, interesting. And um, coming back to organizational design for a minute, do you, have you, in the application of, you know, let's say Double Diamond in particular, have you seen this work best in organizations that have centralized insights functions or is it more to do with insights functions that sit in individual business units and it's the business unit um, rolling out the double diamond or design thinking process? Mm -hmm. um, look, in my experiences, it's probably been more of a centralised function, but the context maybe to provide there is that in the organisations, I guess, I've been either working for or working with, um, that they're in their infancy of their design thinking, you know, maturity, mm. if you like. And so the centralization of that helps you build a small center of excellence over time. And, and I guess if I reflect back and I go and have conversations with organizations I've worked for in the past, they, they over time, if you like, uh, I won't say diffuse, but I guess they go into a more decentralized, more hybridized model. Um, so that, that, it, it's because because at the end of the day, design thinking, the mindsets and the methods, effectively anybody can utilize them. But I think it needs to really, at the, certainly at the onset of this into your organization, needs to be led centrally for, for mm. maximizing success. And that's in my experiences. Yeah, cool. Got it. So is there anything else in the rollout of design thinking, in particular in the insights and CX teams that you think, you know, is there any gold standards or, or um benchmarks that come to mind in, in terms of how to roll out something like the double diamond inside those teams? 
Yeah, definitely. So, look, I, I think, you know, we, we spoke about sponsorship there already um, and, and sponsorship is, is critical for any project, but in particular for a design thinking project, um, because otherwise you'll get to the end and you'll have these great ideas, initiatives or, or recommendations that just can go nowhere because there's no funding or resource commitment or whatever that might look like. Um, I, I think uh, typically if I think about, you know, what uh, you know, some of the stumbling blocks maybe that, that, that hit early on um, is that if you don't spend enough time in the problem space. And so I think this is where it's about getting people to really be comfortable with spending time in problems. And I, I think um, so often in, in, in projects and, and design thinking engagements, you see everybody's trying to race for solution. Um, and, and the more time you can actually spend understanding the problem, you'll actually find greater levels of success. Um, because I think, and, and I guess when if you draw it all the way back to the double diamond, the visualization has got two diamonds that are the same size. And so I sort of describe that you need to spend enough time in both. Um, and so it, it's about getting those right people, rallying them together around that common cause. And, and again, the sponsorship and getting the right people into that engagement and spending that time in, in the, the problem space will actually ensure your success. Is, is a framework like the double diamond, does it pertain... Um, in particular to projects or is there a way to operationalize it and kind of bring it into the the day-to-day and the weekly flow of, a, of an insights or, or even a wider organization yeah yeah definitely so yeah so look it, it's um you know you, you can use it for big and small problems um you know I, I think sometimes you might get to a point where the problems are becoming so small and simple that actually it's not a good value for your return on investment there. But, you know, it can be used for tactical and operational problems right through to, you know, using design thinking actually to develop strategy. So it's got broad application in terms of that type of function um, and and utilisation. And and ultimately it works across all industries. Um, You know, when I think about, I guess, my experiences and, you know, training courses and seminars and and that that I've been to, I've seen it used from everything, you know, from contact centre environments out to, you know, people that are doing things in agriculture and farming and and everything in Mm. between. Um, Something we didn't mention in the intro, at the moment you're working at a university here in Australia called Griffith University. And Mm -hmm. for those that are unaware of the context of Australian universities right now. It's a particularly challenging time with COVID having had a big financial impact on that sector. Um, What are some examples of of things that you're working on where you've successfully managed to roll out either design thinking or the double diamond to improve, I guess, in this instance, student experience rather than customer experience? Yeah, definitely. So look, yeah, I I think COVID in one way, shape or form is impacting everybody. And and it's obviously had some unique challenges for the the higher education sector here in Australia. Um, So if I think about it at Griffith, so, um, you know, again, the context here is that it's a small experience team that is building a level of capability around design thinking and and other other toolkits as well. Um, But we fundamentally have got two customer types where we think about, which is exactly what you described. So number one is obviously the student, um, but we also um, have a second customer type there where we think about that, you know, there's a call, if you like, centralised set of services that is actually providing service internally to a set of academics and researchers. Um, so I guess there's that that sort of, if you like, double um, lens, if you like, about providing uh experience improvements for colleagues and experience improvements for students. Um, So we've had, I guess, applications of design thinking here across both in terms of those engagements. So um, I'm going to start with a colleague example first and and then we'll go to some student ones. So if you you think about the colleague experience, um, you know, where we've been engaged was around um, an end-to-end procurement process. 
process. So the, you know, the, there was the, the ultimate trigger for this was coming out of, there was some feedback that was coming out of a staff survey where this um, process was, was deemed to be um, complex and confusing and hard to administer and navigate. So we were engaged to their work across with the various areas. And so I think this was a, a great example where you had multiple functions inside the university community that were pro providing the service end to end. And so each of them had been focused on optimizing their own part of that process, but no one had ever actually taken the step back and thought, what does this look like from a colleague perspective? And what does this actually look like end to end? So everybody's going, you know, it's great. We're turning out our, our you know, piece of, piece, of that, um, piece of that process in a small number of hours or days, but the cycle times and that when you looked at it end to end was un wasn't actually supporting the community. Um, so look, we, you know, in terms of what we did here, so we started off by actually going out and having a whole raft of just interviews um, and going out and seeing people that were administering this process. Um, so we spoke to people that were high frequency users, people that had been at the university for many, many years, people that were new to the university and, and everything in between. Um, and we took all of those insights and then we worked with the internal service providers um, to actually go, well, what does this actually look like end to end? And I guess the deliverable of the artifact here was, um, I guess it was, it was somewhere between a journey map and a service blueprint. And I think what was fantastic for this is we were making, you know, making, again, sensible that mess, if you like, or all of that feedback that we'd heard through the empathy and, and the interview stages was that where the colleagues were reporting um, frustrations or confusions or, or problems with the process was lining up really nicely with where the internal people providing that service were experiencing pain points and frustration as well. So all of a sudden it actually, you know, provided this alignment where, okay, if we fix this for ourselves, we can also fix it for our colleagues and we, ever, you know, we ultimately all win. You know, we flipped then into the into the next phase. Um, we understood what were existing in-flight initiatives that were going on. We did ideation around where there were still gaps that would need to be looked at to improve the process. Um, and then when, rather than just going straight to implementation, we what we did is we did a whole lot of paper-based prototyping. So we got, uh, and I'm literally talking about drawings, <laughs> we drew what we thought that process would look like end to end. We went back and we tested it with those colleagues we'd done initial interviews with, and they said, yes, if you can deliver that, that would be on track with my needs. We went to the next stage and we started then building wireframes. And so again, we didn't go straight to solution. We just kept testing and testing to make sure that we were building with that continual focus for colleague centricity in this case. Um, and ultimately we've now got to a point where that process has been delivered in an enhanced way. And, and the cycle time has reduced from days to weeks to hours to days. And ultimately, you know, improving service, uh, the, the reducing the pain points for the people providing the service and delivering a better colleague experience. That's probably a big example, but if, if um, you know, but, but much the same with, with student experiences, um, you know, we've done a whole lot of work where it's probably been looking at, um, I guess, let's call them more tactical opportunities, either for a segment of students um, or looking at tactical opportunities for a specific component of their overall experience. Um, so, you know, the wonderful richness of a university like Griffith and, and obviously many other higher education institutions is the richness of diversity we have in our population. Um, so, you know, we, we've done a design thinking engagement where we're specifically exploring how do we improve online student experiences. Um, now, thankfully, I guess that was just before all of the COVID lockdowns where I guess everyone went online for a bit. So that was actually really well timed. Um, you know, whilst everyone was at home and doing their study from home, we ran a design thinking engagement 
um, and this was all then virtually, which was very different for us, where we said, you know, at some point in the future, we'll be coming back to campus. And in a post-COVID world, you know, how does everybody feel comfortable in a post-COVID world with accessing places and spaces on campus? What does, you know, collaboration and building senses of community look like? And so it's allowed us then prior to people returning to actually get people to think about, well, how can we improve those spaces and make everyone come back to campus when we can, but actually be able to do it safely. Um, and now, with, and this is literally engagement we're starting right at the moment, in our new normal, I guess, in, in terms of that language set, let's actually look at the end-to-end -end journey and go, you know, in, in light of COVID and what, what it's now brought um, to, to the higher education um, sector, you know, what does this experience now look like for students in a post-COVID world? Um, so it's a really exciting one that's been building over on top of a number of engagements. And the discipline of, of student experience, obviously customer experience has got um, a fairly well-known history. Has, is student experience something that's been relatively new in the higher education market and has COVID really accelerated the, the focus on that? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so the short answer is probably yes. <laughs> Obviously, COVID has, has improved a fixation or a focus around the student experience um, because of, I guess, the impact of the international students. So there's obviously a greater focus, one, on, on domestic student experience, but importantly, how do we provide for those students that are international students starting in their home country? How do we provide a great experience there? Um, but I think even before COVID, it was probably ooh, a couple of years ago now where it, it was seen not just here at Griffith, but across multiple, um, you know, universities where there was these, you know, director of experience roles or something like that that was starting to come into the sector. Um, and, and I think much the same as, you know, um, you know, even sort of public sector and all of that as well, that there's, you know, that this, um, you know, feeling and flavour that, you know, customer experience initiatives or student experience or whatever you call it makes sense and is just good business. Yeah. And how... I'm curious, have you seen much of a change in, in the process you've gone through with students? Is the, the way that they're wanting to interact with education changed now that they've experienced digital-only education? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, a, it's been fascinating. And, um, you know, and oh, sorry, I've got, I've got little tingles thinking about all of the stories that I've been hearing from people. But, you know, what, what I think is a really, really fascinating insight is that, um, you know, the, the idea of a large lecture. So, you know, when I certainly when I did my study, I remember, you know, the large lectures with 500 people in it, you know. Yeah, you're a, not you alone. Know, yeah, you know, 100 stats or whatever it was. And, mm -hmm. you know, that that's obviously not possible right now. And, and maybe we'll never actually go back to that. Um, but I think what was fascinating was when, um, you know, we could have people starting to return to campus. We weren't returning them here for large lectures, but we were returning them for more for tutorials and seminars and practicals, which, which obviously makes sense in smaller groups and co cohorts. But what I thought was interesting was that we were seeing behaviours where students were choosing to come together somewhere and watch their lectures together because they felt something and they felt a benefit from... I can come together with people. And even though, yes, I'm actually watching a lecture online by coming together and having that opportunity for informal discussion and, and, and in collaboration, it gave them that sense of community that they were expecting within their student experience. Mm. So I guess the challenge for us now is we don't necessarily have a space at the moment that actually is suitable for that purpose. So if this is something we think is going to be part of that ongoing experience, well, how do we create spaces that we can you know, lean in, if you like, to this and allow students to come together? Interesting, very interesting. Um, 
I think, you know, it's pretty plain to see the depth of your expertise when it comes to design thinking. So I'm curious as someone that has that level of understanding that you do, are you, is there particularly industry verticals or market segments that you feel like are, are really well-placed to benefit from a, a customer-centric uh, design thinking approach? And, and if so, you know, why are those industries in particular jumping out at you? Mm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah it, it, it's, it's a good question. And look, I think to some extent, it, it has its place in every single industry sector that I can think about. I think if, if you've got ultimately somebody that is a customer or, or a person or a stakeholder or a colleague or whoever it might be that you can focus on and you've got that idea of a human-centered core, if you've got a problem or an opportunity that is you know, worthy of that investment of time for design thinking engagement, then, then fundamentally it, it works. Um, I think the, the, if you like, the, the mindsets and the methods that come in design thinking, you know, it, it's not a, um, you know, it's not, not a cookie cutter playbook. It, it's, you've got all of these tools, if you like, that are on your toolkit and it's them working to understand what's the problem I'm looking at, what's the end desired outcome I'm working towards and how do I, you know, build that engagement together. So, you know, it, even though, you know, I've done many design thinking engagements and projects over the years, you know, yes, there's some level of commonality there, but every single one is different. Um, so I, I think it does have broad application. Um, and I think, uh, and sort of something I think I touched on earlier, where there's sometimes problems that are too small. And probably where I see some people make those common mistakes early is that they pick just a too small problem to start with their design thinking sort of maturity build. And if it's not big enough and it's just a very, very simple problem, it, you, you're probably not actually it's not it's not a good way to start building that muscle if you like for design thinking um, I go to the other end of the spectrum as well and sometimes I see organizations that are in a chaos situation and they they try to say oh how can we use design thinking here and I think if you go to that complete other end of the spectrum there and, and an organization is in chaos you really there initially need someone to just make some decisions to alleviate that immediate burn because um, design thinking yes it could help you but but it's got obviously a tail to it and a period of time and an investment. Um, so you need to still strongly to make some decisions early and then potentially you could use design thinking down, down the track. Interesting. Imagine for a second that I'm, I'm someone that's watching this podcast online. I've just listened to your description of, of when the situation is right to, to deploy design thinking. And I feel like my organization um, meets those criteria and there's a particular problem in mind that isn't too big. It isn't too small. And, it, and it's, I want to give it a go. What do I do next? What what are some what are some go to things that I should think about in terms of trying to get my first endeavor into design thinking off the ground? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's about um, again you, if you you've got probably you know the right sponsor. So you, you you need obviously somebody that will champion in the cause. Will I guess in a way that if you think about it, will give you let's call it a seed funding to say you know I, I've heard about design thinking. I'd like to you know, I think I've got the right problem. I'd like to have a go. And so you need somebody that will, I guess, give you that opportunity to have a go and give you that funding and time. Um, you know, I, I um, you know, certainly think there's, you know, lots of people like myself that, that can help you or there's obviously other organisations, consulting firms and what that can help you um, if you have those types of funds. But there's also so much training material out there um, and, and a lot of it is, is very accessible and, and, and available. So, um, you know, you, you can certainly, you know, in, enrich your own skill set and knowledge there as well. Um, 
but but I think it, it's yeah. If you if you got that permission to start, you know, you've got somebody that can help show the way. I think that you know you want to try to build some of this capability in house. It's about finding the people that have got the right mindsets. Um, and so when I'm thinking about people that have got the right mindsets for design, it's people that have got, a, I guess, a, a customer passion, if you like, or a human-centered passion. Um, it's people that are comfortable with ambiguity and comfortable with, I guess, a, I've described it a few times as a mess. You know, there's periods in those design phases where you're going out there and you're going wide and it gets messy and it gets ambiguous. And it's, you've got to have people that are going to push through and have that curiosity to actually, you know, keep, keep going and keep digging. Um, I think probably the last part, if you think about mindsets or base skills that are great for people, if you're trying to invest in, in your internal people, you, you need people that are really, really great storytellers um, because so much of what actually gets these engagements through, through the, the design thinking project period and then ongoing is the ability to keep telling those stories that you've learned through that initial empathy phase where you're going out and you're interviewing or you're watching people. Okay, well, imagine for a second that I've found my internal stakeholder, I've found the funding, I've done the training, um, I've found the people with the right mindset who are comfortable with chaos, and I've found my, my people with the storytelling skills to keep um, the right people engaged during the process. How do I know that my approach is working, uh, you know, my design thinking approach in this particular problem I've decided to apply it to? What are some of the leading indicators of success? Yep, yep, good one. Um Oh, so I, I will start with that idea of messiness. So um, it, it, design thinking will feel messy, and and oftentimes, um, you know, when I when I'm you know coaching people that are early on in their journey, and and they say I've, like I've lost which ways up. There's just so much here. I'm like, okay, that means we're doing the right things. It means we're exploring it wide enough, and then it's about helping them obviously make sense of that mess. So I think you know the first leading indicator for a successful engagement when you're in it is that it's feeling messy at periods. It shouldn't feel clean. Um, so often, you know, these problems or opportunities you might be exploring have been within an organisation for so long, and this is just a different way to look at it. And so it is hard and it will be hard. So I think if it feels messy, certainly at the onset, you're, in, you're on the right track. Um, I think it's probably for the core team of people we spoke about there, but there, there's a behavioural piece as well where those, if you like, the stakeholders or colleagues that you're taking on the journey with you, when people stop using the language, I think, and people start saying our customers want or our customers need, and so they've got that shift of, you know, I'm not thinking about just myself now, I'm thinking about that customer or that human that's at the centre of what we're designing for, that's a great success indicator because you're actually not just using the minds, uh, sorry, the methods, you're actually, you know, infusing into people's mindsets. Um and I think probably the third one, um, it probably makes it fairly sort of a bottom-up approach, but when people that have potentially had exposure or have heard about your work, you're having people bring your problems. So when people start seeking you out um, and that you're getting that groundswell or that bottom-up groundswell, um, you know, that's success because it means that people are seeing the value in what you're doing, they're captured, they're interested. And importantly, if you can get that groundswell, the people will typically be invested to then work with you and partner with you to deliver something great. Awesome. And what are those pitfalls or potholes as, as a newcomer to, to rolling out design thinking on a problem yep. that I've got the organisation? What are the ones that I need to be aware of that I can yep. easily um, avoid if I know about them? Oh, goodness. Unfortunately, this, this is probably a lot longer, but I'll, I'll keep myself to try to keep myself to three here. Um, so, uh, look, I've mentioned it briefly earlier. I think, I think the main, let's say, 
issues that I see arising is when people don't spend enough time in the problem space. Um, it, it's, you know, we, we typically as project teams or as individuals in an organization get rewarded and recognized for delivering solutions. Um, I'd love to see it where you get to a point where it's actually you're rewarded and recognized because you've just gone and understood the problem well. Um, and, 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 and yeah, the investing in that gets to the right root causes or the right implicit needs um, and really will set you up for success. So I can't emphasize that enough. Um, I think, look, number two, is probably more when you're getting into your solutioning space. Um, if, if I think about, so, if, you know, at some point there's typically post-its that come involved here and no matter what engagement I work on, one of the first post-its that always goes up in an ideation, ideation session for whatever reason is, oh, we'll just do a mobile app. It, it, it's, and it's not all about technology. Um, there is so many examples I've, I've had where it's not actually a technology fix, it's a culture fix or it's a process fix or it's a communication fix. And the beauty is those are a lot simpler and easier and cheaper typically to do. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've had one, you know, where it was briefed in as we've got a technology problem we think, we don't quite understand it though, we want to explore it. And it ended up being that a communication piece has got reverted to a previous version. And it was just the, the version was now incompatible with the product that it was being dispatched with. And it was causing the issue, you know, so it's, it, you know, spending time to understand that and then look at what's the actual problems we need to fix. And, and it's not all about technology in that solutioning space is probably number two. Um, number three, actually, I know what number three would be. So when, when you think about um, that idea of prototyping, so in my earlier example, I spoke to was that idea that when we did prototype testing of our solution, we used hand, hand-drawn diagrams in the first instance. And I think um, don't don't you, when you're doing prototyping. I, I typically see people overinvest in those initial prototypes. So you know it can be scrappy and it can just be a drawing, but it allows you to test your thinking, and then you can build the maturity of that prototype over time or the fidelity of that prototype over time. Um, but the other thing to caution in that prototype testing phase is something I call confirmation bias. So you're going out there, you've been working on this project for so long, and you go and have these discussions with people to test your prototype. You've got to caution and watch yourself. You're not just listening for people to say what they like. Um, you've got to make sure you listen as well for what they don't like or what they would change. Um, and if that's too hard for you to do, get someone neutral to go and do your, those interviews for you. Yeah. Mm, yes. Yes. Confirmation bias is very oh, yeah. real. <laughs> very, very real. Um, another question for you as a newcomer myself to design thinking how, what's the right way to set expectations internally, particularly with my champion and my stakeholders around how long they can expect me to spend in the problem space? Is it, should they expect me to spend as much time in the problem space as I do in the solution space? Or is there any kind of rules of thumb that I can use to, to set those expectations internally? Yeah, yeah. Look, good, good, good question. It, in the broadest possible sense, I, I always budget, if you like, 50-50 for, for the respective spaces. Um, and I think um, it, it's it, without any other, you know, knowledge, if you like, about what the specific problem is, that's the best indication I can give. Um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, th there is something in it's going to be a number of weeks because, mm. the, you know, for anything where you're trying to schedule time to go out and understand a problem truly, you know, you're going to want to have, you know, interviews with, actual customers or interviews with 
um, you know, internal SMEs, let's call them subject matter experts, you know, you might actually want to do immersion. You might want to watch, you know, people doing things um, to see what their actual experience is like. You're going to want to go out and get data from data sources that might be available to actually validate, you know, this is what I'm hearing or this is what I'm seeing, but what does the data tell me? And, you know, it, that, that takes time. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it's obviously setting that expectation up front, but then, what I typically suggest is if um, you hit that sponsorship perspective, oh, this is all taking too long. Let's well, just increase the frequency of your sponsor check-ins. And so typically I'd say, you know, do more frequent check-ins, but smaller amounts of time. And, and in a way, I guess you're nearly training your sponsor here about I'm showing you lower fidelity and I'm helping you build it with me. And the beauty is obviously if they're in contributing into the design engagement as well more frequently, they own the outcomes a little bit better as well. So again, they're more likely to take action as a result of your design thinking project and engagement. Great. That was a really uh, comprehensive, if not a uh, rapid dive into, into design thinking. I certainly learned a lot. So thank you. If, if it's all right with you, we might move into our uh, rapid fire question round. Excellent. Um, to it. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got five rapid fire questions about customer experience and about yourself. Um, so let's kick off with the first one. Mm-hmm. What's the best piece of CX or insight advice that you've ever received? Oh, okay. Definitely. Um, so if I think about, so um, the first time I ever came out of a contact center manager role into a project sort of space um, and, and at the time I didn't realize how much of an impact it would have the, the, the program manager there kept pulling me up for weeks and weeks and weeks about, don't tell me what you think, tell me what the customers think. And that has stayed with me forever. And it's now interesting. I find myself repeating that language to people so often, but um, yeah, absolutely. The best piece of advice I ever got. And, and what's the thing that you're most excited about in the world of CX right now? Oh, okay. Oh, there's a bit. Um, look, I think the COVID situation has obviously, you know, thrown everything for, for many organisations and industries up in the air a little bit. And yes, it brings problems. And, and, and I guess globally, it's obviously got still, you know, a tail on it. But in that, there's also a lot of opportunity at the moment. And there's a lot of opportunity to think about how you might want to do things differently and to engage with customers differently. So I, I think there's problems, but yes, there's opportunities in it. Um, I think the only other part I'm personally passionate and excited to see is that with COVID and the situation we've had last year, there seems to have been this increased flavour for sustainability, um, for, you know, for health, particularly mental health as well. Um, and, and obviously, a, you know, a greater level of conversation happening about equity. Um, and I think that's all good for, for us as, a, as, as, you know, a, a global community. Personally, my favourite question, because I am a big fan of books, what book would you recommend to our audience and why? Ooh, okay. So if I think about um, design thinking, we'll, we'll talk about, um, now this is testing my memory, it's a book called Sprint by Jake Knapp. Um, and this is a great book which talks about how you can do a design thinking engagement end-to-end in five days. Um, and it is literally got detailed session plans within it as well. So it's a great one to be able to just have a bit of a read. Um, and there's some great stories in there about how they've utilised that approach. Um, the only other second one I'll quickly put in there as well um, would be The Power of Moments. Uh, so this is uh, Chip and Dan Heath. Um, and it's, it's probably one of the best books I've read over the last couple of years um, because it talks about that idea that not all moments are equal. Um, and so I guess when we're going out on these design thinking engagements, you don't have to go and fix everything. It's about finding the moment that really matters and going and, you know, doubling down your efforts there. 
Great. We'll link to both of those in the show notes so people can get to them easily. Um, If I was to ask you which person or company is really nailing it when it comes to customer experience or insights, who comes to mind? Ooh, okay. Actually, I'll go, there's a couple here, but yeah. So look, I think AIA um, Health and Life Insurance, I think are doing some really interesting pieces. Um, they're a new to market player in the health, the health insurance space specifically, and they seem to be doing things differently. Um, they seem to be wanting to partner with me as a customer. They seem to be returning value to me above, above and beyond what it is that I'm actually expecting. Um, and I think I love that they led the way last year by doing just a refund to customers, recognising they couldn't get health insurance benefits last year, particularly around extras, and they led the way. So I think they're doing things differently. I think they're shaking things up and it's exciting. Um, I think the other, uh, there's probably the two examples, but it's probably talking broadly about it, about sort of a, a, a group of companies around, you know, RACQ for me up here in Queensland and certainly the NRMA down in Sydney. Um, I think it's fascinating to see what these companies are doing in the face of challenges about how do they stay relevant in a world where cars now just work more effectively. Um, and so I think what I love seeing there is their, their, their focus around a member experience returning value and they're finding ways to stay true to their brand essence, but in different ways, which is really exciting to see. Um, Those are probably the ones that come to mind. Yeah. And last one, what's an interesting little fun fact about you that most people wouldn't know about? Uh, Oh goodness. I guess my, my 2020 um, way of decompressing, I guess in the lockdown, um, I got very, very addicted to Lego again. (laughs) Um, So my two daughters absolutely loved that. Um, But yeah, I just, it was, it was lovely to be able to decompress using my hands and to build some really, really crazy things. And it helped me get some ideas and things out of my mind actually into something tangible. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) Maybe I'll follow your lead. Um, If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, yeah, definitely. Look, I'd love to start conversations with anyone that's listening. Um, so please get in touch on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way. Um, and certainly happy to pick up a conversation from there. Awesome. We'll, we'll chuck a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Rod, thanks for joining us today on Insightful Leaders. It's been really insightful. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.